Hello humans, welcome back to the podcast. I keep telling myself uh, that I would do one episode a week and then I find myself procrastinating like my life is dependent on it. Oh god, this time it's it's almost it's almost 2 months. Well, sorry about that. But for this episode I wanted a really interesting topic. Um I think I dabbled in almost four, <laughs> did some research and left them all halfway. I mean if doing research on them was so boring can you imagine listening to them well that's a bit of a controversial opinion i think anyway so i was looking through um the lives of some historical figures and events when i was doing that i was finding it difficult to narrow down on one right so i start reading about one character right start doing research come across a more interesting character who somehow you know like knows the character that we are talking about and then run behind him or her and then the cycle repeats uh, you know as george orwell did not say all historical characters are interesting but some characters are more interesting than others it's a vicious cycle anyway so let's get to know today's topic as i was struggling to pin down one person for this episode This line that was written about this character really helped. It is a story of a dancing girl who ditched the burqa and other norms of propriety to head a very successful mercenary army of 4000 troops and ruled for 55 glorious years. I mean goosebumps, right? I was naturally enthralled. What a life trajectory and more importantly what situations, events and intrigue led to the rise of this queen. Now that's what I want to know. So let's just dive into the life of Begum Samru who is the protagonist of today's episode. I'm sure you hate me doing this but before we get into the Begum's life it is important to understand the political scene of you know where this story is set what was the time what was happening who were the players so let's just go back in time to the end of 18th century um after the death of aurangzeb in uh, 1707 the mogal empire was in shambles okay although there were many reasons for this the main one was due to the external raids um led by Nadir Shah and uh, Ahmad Shah Abdali and the plunder they did so what was this so Nadir Shah was the son of a humble shepherd but showed unbelievable military prowess and also his or rather he was extremely violent so it was may 21st he reached the mogal empire with 80000 fighting men His invasion could be said as the first among the many invasions that the country would see in the next two centuries. Of course, he defeated the Mughals. He then conquered the emperor himself by just inviting him for dinner and refusing to let him go. Classic. At least hundred thousand people were killed. Um, the Persian soldiers just got on top of the houses and started killing, slaughtering, plundering people's properties. um carrying away their wives daughters all of that they even set fire to a number of houses many women from delhi were enslaved as well um i mean you can just imagine the picture right the roads were filled with the dead so the army took anything that they got their hands on so the nizam begged nadir shah to spare the inhabitants and instead to punish him poor guy 
So Nadir Shah instead asked his troops to stop the killing and asked for 100 crore rupees. I mean, I'm not exactly sure about the number here, but pretty much, you know, um, the currency of that time. So the Nizam was forced to loot his own people for money. In short, the accumulated wealth of uh, 348 years changed masters in a moment. The Nizam to Nadir Shah. The Mughal spell was destroyed and seeing how it was so easy for the Persians to just come in and take what they wanted, the East India Company now dreamed of taking their own chunk, right? This was like an example that kind of showed them, wow, you know what, this is possible. Now, that is a story for another episode. So now, the Mughals are ruined due to these invasions and by the end of 18th century, you know, a long time later, Shah Alam II, who has an incredible arc, by the way, ruled with only close to 5,000 troops. That's where we are at, scene one. Now, uh, moving ahead in the story just a little bit, a bunch of intrigue were at play here, okay? So the lesser Mughal officials wanted to carve provinces for themselves. The Rajput, Marathas, Sikhs, they were all fighting to establish their own dominances and the European countries, you know, French and British, at this point were trying to move up the ladder from simple traders to rulers. We won't go into much detail, but British had great success at Bengal after the Battle of Plassey. I'm sure a lot of people uh, know about it. And they even captured Shah Alam after the Battle of Paksar. British were so smart in convincing and forcing Shah Alam to agree to collect taxes from Bengal. So chaos all around. It was also a perfect climate for people with few soldiers to start their own enterprise as mercenaries. Many of these mercenaries were French and they provided their services to the highest bidder, you know, full-blown startup scene. Now, enter Walter, oh my god, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I should have uh, looked it up. I want to say Walter Reinhardt Somber, so I'm just gonna stick to that. So this is now 1750, he is an Austrian who was a part of a French army in India. It is believed that he was carpenter, but you know, um, details are a little murky there. But his rise in power could be traced back to his decision to offer his services to Mir Qasim, hmm, character number two. He was the Nawab of Bengal. Let's take a bit of a detour here. I'm so sorry. I know, I know we have not come to the Begum yet, but it is important to know about the political situations that resulted in her reign. So we talked about Shah Alam, right? Let's just talk a little bit about who Mir Qasim is. So where was I? Yeah, Mir Qasim, yes. He was smart, had great abilities, and all of these were recognized by Warren Hastings at the time, who also wanted new administration in Murshidabad, currently ruled by Mir Jafar, father-in-law of Mir Qasim. And he was not a great ruler at all. So he conspired, who? Mir Qasim conspired with the British um, Henry Wansitert, to be precise. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really butchering all of these names. To be precise. So he Mir Qasim basically conspired with the British to put himself as the Nawab and kick his father-in-law out. He succeeded even. To his credit, he was a better ruler and did his administrative duties really, really well. I mean, although the English helped him 
put him on the throne, he did not want to be under their thumb, right? So he decided to leave his uncle in Murshidabad and moved to Mongir to sort out his plan and administer well from there, away from the English, so that, you know, he can um, conjure up his own plans away from the prying eyes. Here he did a lot of things, right? He worked against corruption by checking the books and tallying finances to make sure that everything was aligned. He was supposed to possess 90,000 troops on paper, but in reality, it was less than half of that. He was cutthroat in uh, cutting inefficient people from his side. That's a funny way to put it. The corrupt people responsible for this were removed and he began recruiting new troops. 16,000 um, Mughal horses and three battalions of European-style sepoys, amounting to, I think, almost around 25,000 infantry. To train them and teach them the European fighting styles, he hired two European mercenaries. One of those was our Walter Reinhardt Somber. Remember the first name that I was struggling with? Remember I told you that he was a carpenter and turned into a mercenary? Yes, this is how it ties up. He was a gloomy and emotionless soldier. He had risen into the French army from a poor household and had fought bravely at the Battle of Ittingen. He was in Holland when he took a ship to India on a whim. He learned many of the Indian languages, by the way. Mughals could not believe that he was not a Hindustani. Now the job of these two mercenaries was to train Mirkasim's new recruited troop to fight against the company. I know, right? A brave man. So let's just trace back a little bit. What have we learned so far? We learned about Shah Alam. We learned about Aurangzeb and what happened there and Nadir Shah and his plunder. And then we learned about Mir Qasim's and his intrigue against the British. Now, there is a really interesting story here. Um, but let's get to the end. So Walter's troop managed to massacre 150 Englishmen in Patna with Mir Qasim and earned him a title, the Butcher of Patna. After this, he fled to be away from the British and still worked as a mercenary. What he did here will come back in play later, so don't forget. So it is now 1765 and our hero Walter is 45 years old, so he dropped into Kanumjan's quota, aka a brothel in Delhi for <clears throat> evening pleasure. Here he met the 15-year-old Kashmiri dancer, Farzana, aka our heroine of the story. Now, we don't know much about Farzana's early life. Some say she was the daughter of a nobleman and others say she was the daughter of the owner of the brothel. But honestly, it really doesn't matter. Walter, at this point, is already married. Maybe not, okay, maybe not married, but he had a concubine called Barri Bibi. Anyway, so he was so impressed and besotted with Farzana that he moved her with him as well. Turns out it was perfectly normal at the time for European mercenaries. Farzana was extremely smart and good with words. These characteristics of hers um, will pay off again and again, as we will learn later. So she and Walter became partners in this mercenary enterprise and business as they offered their services to different armies and rulers. Walter and Farzana are happy now. Now, let's move to the court of Shah Alam a bit, okay? The day when Shah Alam would regard Farzana as his own daughter would soon come, actually. 
the stage um, was set through a battle. In 1772, what he wanted the most was to regain his empire, starting from Delhi. At this time, Agra was occupied by the Jat Raja of Deek, the Raja who had hired Walter and his services. Remember, the Mughal forces under Najaf Khan attacked Agra in the name of Shah Alam and destroyed the Jats. Although Walter's troops lost, Najaf Khan was so impressed that he asked him to join the Mughals, which he did. I mean, you know, this was not a big problem for Walter as he moved from one army to another, you know, one ruler to another quite quickly and easily. Now, Farzana moves with him, obviously. Now, they are in the Mughal Empire. Now, Farzana was now called Begum Samru, fashioned after the last name of Walter Somber. Now, in the Mughal province, she got accustomed to the court and the people within. She and Walter were instant hits in the eyes of both Shah Alam, whose eyes would be gouged out and his family killed and tortured in some years, by the way. Again, not for this episode. And also, Najaf Khan. It is said that, you know, it was because of Begum's ability to make friends and influence people that they were the celebrities in uh, the Mughal court. Soon, they were also um, handed the uh, territory of Sardana, which yielded 6 lakhs per annum. Because of Shah Alam, these two people from humble background became rulers. But just two years later, unfortunately, Walter died. Now, as per the norm, Whatever Walter owned should have been given to his son from his first concubine. Remember, we touched on that just a little bit. Um, Barri Bibi and the name of the son was uh, Zafar Yab Khan. But Begum Samru would not let go of all of this without a fight. She got her troops to support her and she used the influence from Najaf Khan to put herself in the line. I mean, not that she was cruel to Walter's son or anything, because he still lived in luxury, focusing on poetry and art, basically funded by Begum Samru. The end of this, Sardana was allocated to her to rule. She had inherited almost 4,000 troops to help her out. She must have seemed so unbelievably cool for people in her court, looking at their new queen, because, you know, she used to wear a turban and she used to smoke hookah in her court. And she converted to Catholicism, actually, in 1781 and took the name Joanna. Begum Samru was on a path to glory. We already talked about how witty she was, right? She was very persuasive and was able to achieve great feat through negotiation. A great uh, diplomat indeed. Her conquests and achievements are documented and each story is greater than the other, trust me. For instance... She helped our Shah Alam, the emperor, multiple times and earned the title. Okay, hold on. Let me get this right. Zebunnisa, which means ornament among women. He used to think of her as his beloved daughter. Not only that, she, she was brave as well, leading her troops in many battles herself. One such battle was the one that happened in 1783 March. Now, Bagil Shah was not a nobody, okay? He was extremely skilled, not just in warfare, but also in administrative activities. It is said that the Mughals, the Rohilas, the Marathas and British sought his friendship. He celebrated in Sikh history as the vanquisher of Mughal Delhi. He was on his way conquering uh, principalities and reached Delhi on the 11th of March, 1783, 
the Khalsa forces composed of uh, Jassa Singh, Alwalia and Baba Bagel Singh entered the Red Fort in Delhi and occupied the Hall of Public Audience. Shah Alam sought the help of Begum Samru, who diffused the entire situation quite cheaply through her negotiating skills. She got rid of them in exchange for the right to build eight Gurudwaras in Delhi and a percentage of the revenue collected for just that year. Um, another time she came to the rescue of our dear old Shah Alam is a sad and an extremely gory history. Let's rewind a bit. Allow me to introduce a new character, the psychopathic Rohila Gulam Khader. I know, I know, I said that this is an episode on Begum Samru, but I'm taking you through way too many detours. I'll tell you why. Not only is the story of Begum Samru fascinating, but also the political climate she was a part of. And the other reason is simple, okay? History is like an awesome high fantasy novel. There may not be dragons, but the people were real and, and they were unbelievably interesting. When you get into the rabbit hole of trying to piece the life of one person, you start to see patterns. You, you start to see how the different stories, people and situations connect in the background. Right? It is not fun to just know some stories about some people. What's more fun is to look at a piece of history and weave it to a bigger picture. It is the closest you will ever come to experience history on a personal level. I call it false nostalgia. <laughs> anyway, enough with the rant. Let's just learn a bit about Gulam Khader's story. Okay, there is a connection between Gulam Khader and Shah Alam. So we are going to talk a little bit about that. So, Shah Alam, a long time ago, saved Gulam Khadir from the Marathas who had killed his father and brought him home. He was extremely affectionate about the boy and uh, treated him as his own son. There, there were also some rumours that Shah Alam was involved in homosexual relations with the boy and that when he was old and uh, turned handsome, seeing that the ladies in the court were eyeing him, drugged him and castrated him. We don't know for sure. Um, years later, um, we won't get into what happened in all those years, Shah Alam is not his former self. He is a puppet of an emperor under the protection of Marathas under Sindhya. So Shah Alam's family at this point often went hungry and uh, lived a very simple life. The day came when Sindhya took his troops to Jaipur and left the Red Fort unguarded but for a few battalions and troops, of course. This is when Gulam Khader realized that it was time to avenge his father by attacking the not-so-protected Red Fort. He decided to act on it in 1788. If Shah Alam knew what would happen to him next, he would not have brought this boy home several years ago. He reached Delhi and destroyed Shah Alam and his family. He gouged out the emperor's eyes and blinded him, tortured the men, women and children in the family, imprisoned the family members until they died of hunger, raped and abused women and did every despicable thing one could think of. This is when Begum Samru came to Shah Alam's rescue again. Gulam Khadir fled facing the artillery and troops of Begum Samru, but he would also meet a devastating end. Mahaji Sindhya came back from Jaipur, hunted him down, tortured him to death and sent his eyeballs in a box so that now blinded Shah Alam could feel it with his hands. 
Ah, so beautiful. I'm not someone who thinks that a historical figure is just strong, great, courageous and pious. They were real people with quirks and flaws, right? That's what made them human. The same goes for Begum Samru as well. There were instances when she let her heart rule her head and paid dearly. So this is the love story between our Begum and George Thomas, who was a mercenary. He joined her troop um, after the death of her husband in 1787. So there was an instant spark and essentially they were lovers. So they rallied into many battles and won a bunch of them as well. But the romance was short-lived. Enter Amald Lee was sold, a French adventurer. So he joined her troop in 1790 and she, now 40-year-old at the time, fell madly in love with him now. Turns out she even married him in secret. Naturally, um, George Thomas, jealous of this relationship, left her troops and found another employment along with the people who were loyal to him. He was a man with ambition, of course. He wanted what Begum Samru had. He successfully managed to alienate her from her trusted and loyal troops who now, discouraged and angry, went to her stepson, remember, the one spending time in poetry and all those luxuries contributed by Begum Samru's money, Zafariyab Khan, to revolt against her. Now, what happens next is a bit tragic and also quite comical. Now, Begum Samru and Arman, the new lover, are being chased by her angry troops along with her stepson. It turns out that they had both made a suicide pact. So romantic, right? When they were about to be captured, she stabbed herself. He saw uh, the bloodied clothes and he shot himself. Uh, the Begum, however, did not die. The soldiers dragged her and uh, tied her to a cannon, apparently. But the previous lover, George Thomas, heard about the revolt and came to rescue her and he installs her back to her position. Uh, love can make people do crazy things and Begum Samru was not an exception. It would have been super romantic if it weren't for the, you know, stabbing and shooting and mainly the tying of um, Begum Samru to the cannon and all of that. After this, she placed her stepson in house arrest and, she, uh, and he continued doing what he loved, arts, poems, etc. and died 10 years later. God, I envy him. Naturally, uh, Begum Samru was impressed and owed George Thomas a great deal. She got him married to a nice lady and he even ruled a small kingdom of Hansen, which, which was the rarest thing in India, a white Raja. So he built the Jahas Koth I'm sorry, Jahas Kota in Hazar, which is still standing, by the way. After he died, the grateful uh, Begum looked after his wife and children. I guess that is very sweet of her. Now let's take a look at India's backdrop again. I can already feel um, the judgy eyes and people rolling their eyes at me right now. And I promise this is the last time. So what is happening uh, and what the British are doing right now? What are they up to, right? We know that by this time, the East India Company was a fully-fledged administration ruling the country. It was accentuated by their new viceroy, enter Lord Wellesley and his brother Arthur. Let's move a bit away from Begum Samru and move close to the British. I promise you that all of this will come together. Richard Wellesley had two goals, to give India completely to the East India Company and to kick out the remaining French uh, from India. 
there were some armies in india that were using french military techniques um at the time there was tipu sultan of mysore of course nizam ali khan of hyderabad and the great maratha confederacy the prime focus of richard wellesley he would tackle all of these armies the princes and kings and subordinates ruthlessly and cunningly that is a great story and maybe for another episode i keep saying this over and over again don't be mad there are way too many interesting stories and i can only do so much for now uh, let me just tell you that the wellesley brother conquer mysore by killing tipu and are now focusing on the marathas this is where the paths of begum samru crosses with the wellesleys the battle of asai was fought between the british and the maratha in 1803 and begum samru because of a mughal alliance had to send five battalions to the maratha side the victory just like with mysore came to richard wellesley but the battalions that begum samru had sent managed to come back safe so the british turned their eyes at begum samru and wanted to take away the estates that were given to her by her late husband the same man who massacred all those english men in patna the butcher of patna remember full circle moment right but our begum was smart and she was able to wriggle out of this as well how her great negotiation skills she negotiated with the six to release a british official held hostage and charm lord lake with her wit and diplomacy i mean he was so enthralled by her that he took her hands and kissed them the begum later explained to her traumatized troops that this was a tradition it was like a padre greeting his daughter she would say though she was 50 and uh, he was 5 years older let's not get there right now so this negotiation went for a couple of years actually and the british decided that she would be a useful and a faithful ally and uh, she got her estates back signed over by the new viceroy lord cornwallis there was one distinct um change though hofer troops were let out to the british at her expense and her days as a mercenary came to an end she spent the next 30 years taking care of the uh, taking care of sardana and its people she died extremely wealthy and well focused on agriculture and she gave patronage to the arts and supported artists and poets all of them she remained friendly with the british and uh, died a very wealthy woman as i said and the great story of her of a dancer girl who changed her fate ruled a kingdom and brought unbelievable changes to the face of history now comes to an end although i did a lot of research on begum samru the majority of the information has taken from two amazing books the anarchy by william dalrymple and the women who ruled india by archana garodia gupta these books are amazing and you should definitely check them out now before i end this episode i would like to quote skinner about begum samru she was cruel unforgiving relentless deceitful liberal only where self interest required it and courteous too often merely to hide enmity one anecdote it is given by bishop heber and we believe is in the main correct will serve to show something of her ruthless and implacable nature a slave girl had offended her an affair we believe of jealousy the poor creature was brought before her a hole dug in the earth under the floor of the room in which she was buried alive and as if it had been a trifling occurrence her mistress smoked her hookah 
unconcernedly on this living grave thank you so much for listening um please drop a review and rate this podcast this will inspire me to read more about history and find more fascinating story i'm still a beginner in understanding the fascination of the older times and i'm having a lot of fun making these episodes um yes yes i know i started this episode talking about how i procrastinated but i will try um really hard to be consistent if you have any suggestion on what i can cover please send that as a comment talk to you soon take care